dusty ins, just cause the outs, and let's talk about, let's talk about, let's talk about. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk About the Arts with myself, Virgil Curtis. Today, I'm joined by Kieran Gaffney. How are you? Or Gaff, yeah. as everyone knows you. Does it feel weird when people say Kieran? Yeah, people only really say Kieran when I'm in trouble. Okay. Um, or my parents, yeah. obviously, and my siblings, because yeah. there's five kids in my family, so we're all Gaffs, and right. um, we obviously have to distinguish within the home. Who, who is who? Which yeah. Gaff is Gaff? Exactly, yeah. Because it was funny when uh, we had a phone call recently, and I knew you through other people as Gaff, and uh. never knew your real name oh yeah yeah but then when you sent me your number and i saved it it came up kieran gaffney then i was like should i start the call with hi kieran or but then you were like i think you said it somehow and i was like okay we'll go with that yeah yeah um but i usually let people how i've kind of let people know how i've met people Mm -hmm. so we actually met two years ago Mm -hmm. in a coffee shop Mm -hmm. through alex gogarty yep um and I knew nothing about you then <laughs> and I still am like excited to learn more about you but this year in the last year you've set up Shana Iha yeah am I pronouncing it correctly almost oh, go on tell us all <laughs> uh, it's pronounced Shana Kiha Shana Kiha yeah Shana okay Kiha. cool although I think people have different ways of pronouncing yeah, it yeah you hear a lot of correct yeah it's funny you say about my name so okay. uh, obviously my name is Kieran Gaffney but everyone calls me Gaff and um People who see the Instagram page for Shana Kiha, they mm-hmm. see it as someone called Sean Quiha. So I'm getting a lot of texts oh, okay. from different people being like, hey, Sean, just wondering, you know, when the tickets are going live for the next event. Oh, so a lot of people think my name is Sean now. It's really funny. I never I never got that. But yeah, yeah I see that. Yeah. Also very triggering because the hottest ticket in town. Yeah. Just, you cannot get one. I know. And I've just seen you've launched that you're doing more in Dublin in the new year, which is very exciting. Mm. But like, I literally see it now and I'm like, but we won't get tickets. And that's what I'm actually kind of scared of as well, because uh, I mean, it's a very, very, very privileged thing to complain about. Yeah, of course. We're selling tickets quite fast and there's a high demand for tickets to see, you know, to go to Shanakia. But I also want it to be accessible. So I'm trying to kind of work out ways to make Shanakia more accessible to more and more people. So more and more people get to either come and listen to the, you know, beautiful stories that are told by the various different Shanakia that yeah. come in the doors. Um, and also then, you know, for people to speak at Shanakia, because originally the problem was that there was a high demand for tickets. Yeah. But now there's a high demand of applicants wa- wanting to speak. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's really kind of shown me that there's such a desire to tell stories and to listen to stories and yeah. to just have that emotional connection that you get as a storyteller or as a story listener um, at a night like Shanakia or the many other storytelling nights that exist. And it's cool, like the people that I know who have spoken at it, they're not the people I would have said would put themselves forward. Mm -hmm. So it does feel like you've created this safe space for people who might necessarily align with being public speakers or being entertainers or Mm -hmm. whatever word you want to use. So it's like, I think that's one of the reasons I really want to go because I want to see these people get up and tell their stories and witness what I'm being told. Mm. Cause it's like all magic. It's special. It's mm. vulnerable. It's emotional. And I think a lot of that does come sometimes from people who are not trained yeah. to get up and know what to say mm. and know how to tell a story and mm. know when to drop this. Mm. So it's, that's really intriguing yeah. for me. It's a beautiful statistic. Actually, I did a little bit of an audit on all the various different people who've spoken at Shanahan. Okay, cool. Where, and roughly 60% of the people that have spoken at Shanakia had never done any type of public speaking prior to getting up on the stage and telling their story. Actually, it's not even a stage. We don't even have a stage. It's just like getting up on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, it's just like, it's it. that's what's beautiful. And what I love about it, especially when you see someone telling a story and the crowd reacts to a line in their story. And they're kind of surprised that the crowd are laughing or the crowd are crying or the crowd are sighing or gasping. And they're kind of like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't know I was able to do this. And yeah, people, one, one guy actually, he, 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 um, sent me a message after last Thursday's event. And he basically just told me that the feeling that you have in your chair prior to getting up and telling a story and then the feeling you have when you get back to the chair afterwards Mm -hmm. 
is just indescribable. Like you just get such a sense of confidence, of courage, of catharsis. You feel like the empathy just dripping from the walls. <laughs> like you know, everyone is just listening to you. And even there is, you know, there have been a couple of people who've gotten quite emotional up there because it is quite mm-hmm. emotional when you're, you know, looking at your own story face to face and kind of recounting it to a crowd. You know, it can get quite overwhelming. And there was one girl I remember who was in Amsterdam and she got really upset while she was speaking. And she also lost a page um, that mm-hmm. she was reading her story. So you can you can read your story or you can add it if you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And she lost a page. And um, she got quite, um, you know, just as you would get, it, got a little bit, um, what's the word? Like just, you know, stressed frazzled about that. Or, yeah, exactly, yeah. frazzled. And she apologized to the crowd for the pause. And I remember someone getting up at the back of the room and saying, love, like, we're not going anywhere. We're, we're here to listen from start to finish. And that was just really encouraging for her. And then she found her piece of paper and she continued reading. Um, and the people that come, they're all there with one purpose. And it's not to judge. It's a judgment-free zone. It's there there to listen and they're there to engage and that's the beauty of it like everyone is just so encouraging and this is a very nice but that's so it's so rare Mm. to have a place that is non-judgmental because we live in a world where we judge Mm. like everything like what people put out there what people don't put out there how people like just are in the world Mm. so to create that space is extremely rare and before we jump into your prompts i would love to ask how much thought effort time went into creating the space because i'm such a believer of create the space and everything else will happen even if mistakes happen (laughs) once that's created it doesn't matter what happens around it yeah so it kind of happened by accident i'm not gonna lie i was i was living in argentina in six years ago and um when i lived there there was a really cool spoken word event happening um, Mm -hmm. in this like crazy abandoned mansion in the middle of buenos aires and um I went to it and I actually worked for an alcohol brand at the time. So I was sponsoring uh, the event with, with oh, cool. uh, drinks and my friend was running it and she uh, asked me if I wanted to speak at it. So I told a really gorgeous story about um, my grand uncle who I'll mention in a bit. And um, I just felt so amazing afterwards. And I went to a couple more events that we sponsored and then I kind of started helping with the overall kind of organization of them. And then, you know, six years later, I'm living in Dublin and or five years later, I'm living in Dublin. And I remember just going to an event in Dublin. I can't even remember what it was. And I remember just being like, I would love to get involved in the event scene in Ireland. And I had a good think about this event in Argentina and it was kind of different to uh, what Shaniki is. But at the end of the day, it's a storytelling event and there are Mm -hmm. multiple storytelling events out there. And I messaged my friend Alessandra who ran the Argentinian event and I was like, hey, like I'm thinking of setting up my own storytelling night in Dublin. Do you think I should? And she was like, 100%. She was like, I want you to run with this gaff. Like you're made for this. And she's like, I just am so delighted to see storytelling even just existing in other parts of the world. And she knew herself, like Ireland is an amazing place for storytellers. So then I decided to go ahead, you know, I took a step back and I had a really good think about how I could make this a little bit, you know, more of my own thing and how I could ground it in Irish culture and how I could really kind of tap into those kind of wants that we as human beings have, particularly Mm -hmm. after coming out of a pandemic and, you know, all the various things that come with that. And I was able to make Shanakia, you know, my own and really turn it into something absolutely, you know, beautiful and Mm -hmm. grounded in Irish culture but also open to all cultures and that's what I really love about it as well like you know it's not I think a lot of people think sometimes people think that it's just an Oscalga event and we actually haven't had a single Irish spoken um, story yet but we will be pivoting into different languages Um, I'm lucky enough to speak a couple of myself so definitely want to do a I want to do a Shanaki Oscalga yeah I also want to do a Spanish one as well great Um, and then maybe take it from there it's just going to keep growing and growing it's so. very no like it's <laughs> i think everyone i meet is just like like you have to go and mm-hmm. i had uh pj kirby in here last oh, week yeah. and he had just been with his boyfriend to yeah. and he was like no you like have to go oh, and i was like bitch so i'm fucking trying <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's jump into you yeah and your prompts so let's touch on your first prompt which you kind of touched on there which mm-hmm. was your grand uncle who is you described as a mentor within your prompt and he lived till 100 and he now this is incredible he didn't stop working no until his death until his death yeah so why did you choose him <laughs> as one of your defining Mentors. kind of yeah as one of my, yeah so so uncle Marius is what we all call him um he was my grand uncle 
and he was my grandfather figure growing up because okay. my own both my grandfathers died prior to me being born um one of them extremely tragically uh, my dad's dad who was Marius's brother died in a plane crash in 1951 oh, wow. the Ireland, the first ever Ireland plane crash and wow. um, yeah weird claim to fame but yeah. it is one and a fact though. Uh, nice I don't know yeah <laughs> and my dad was one years old when he lost his dad so his okay. father figure was his dad's brother Marius who was almost like a wonderful embodiment of my own grandfather and Marius really took on this role quite seriously growing up you know he had his own two children um but he really cared for my dad and his brother and his sister. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of, you know, was something that he also reflected onto us as well, his, you know, um, five grand nephews and nieces. And um, he was just a total legend. He was a barrister, um, mm-hmm. but he actually trained to be a priest and then uh, fell out of the seminary um, due to a bit of a breakdown, I think. Okay. And uh, then he met his wife, um, who was also a former training nun. <laughs> they um both were trauma bonding yeah and they they met while they were studying law and then oh, okay she went to america to work as a lawyer and he was uh, working as a barrister in dublin and then one fine day he saw her on the top of a dublin bus and stopped the bus and i'm pretty sure she got off the bus and then they started dating and they ended up marrying and they had children oh can life just work like that again yeah i know that's what i need it's dating so to be like again yeah <laughs> just stopping buses can someone just stop me on a bus please i know it's, if it only is that simple yeah but uh yeah so he basically um he, he worked as a barrister and he was a criminal defense lawyer and okay. um he was one of the most gracious kindest people I've ever met in my entire life. He'd listen to his six-year-old nephew nattering on about his dreams to become a pilot, let's say, um, with the same amount of dignity and honour that he would listen to the clients he represented. Um, or, you know, he would give the most robust advice to anyone who came his way. He'd never pontificate advice. He'd never be, you know, belligerent in his own opinions. He just kind of took a step back and would listen to you and would just convert all of that into just the soundest counsel in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a great story that I tell, I've told at Shanakia before, and um, basically, you're paraphrasing it as quickly as I can. He um, No, take your time. When he was around 96 years old, um, himself and his wife, Leonie, lived in the basement of their former, like, three-story house in Dunleary. Um, they gave the upstairs to his daughter and um there are sheep i don't know how that ended up but she lived there and they were in the basement which became essentially like a granny flat and in the middle of the night he woke up to hear some noise in the hallway and the door opens and in walks a burglar and morris you know being 96 is obviously quite vulnerable he didn't need mm-hmm. a walking stick or anything like that and he was pretty uh, able-bodied but at the end of the day he was 96 years old yeah so Instead of, you know, indignantly gasping or telling this man to get out of his room, he just simply said, hello. And the burglar was so startled because he'd obviously, you know, thought he was breaking into two yeah. sleeping elderly people's heads. And the burglar just immediately said, I want money. And Marius is like, shh, 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 you're going to wake my wife. And he just basically <laughs> said, he's like, can you go into the living room and I'll be into you in a couple of minutes. I just need to get my slippers on and my dressing gown. And the Guy is completely aghast at this. He can't believe how well he's being received by someone whose house he's literally broken into. Yeah. And um, he goes into the living room. He does as he's told. And Marius gets his dressing gown on, his slippers on. He gets his nighty on because he used to wear nighty black. And they end up sitting at the table. And Marius basically just asked him, quite simply, what got you here? Like, wh- why are you doing this? And they ended up having around a two-hour conversation about life, about, you know, the lessons that Marius learned, you know, representing a lot of people in this man's mm-hmm. situation, um, the lessons that he learned in general, um, got to know a little bit more about this guy who'd broken into the house. Um, he could only offer him a cup of 7-Up and a banana because Marius didn't drink. He, he, okay. was, he was a teetotaler. And he then, at the very end of the conversation, you know, Marius is like, well, look, I have to get up because I work tomorrow. To which this man was stunned. He couldn't believe that this guy was still working. And he was like, you said you wanted money, didn't you? And the baker was like, yeah, yeah, I didn't. Marius is like, well, look, you know, in my study on the table, there's around 20 euro note. I think it's a 20. It's either a five or a 20. That's all I have. The rest of it's in the bank. I don't think you want to stay until the bank's open. People might get a little bit suspicious. So he, he goes into bed. Anyway, yeah. and the burglar is still in the house and Marius, you know, had asked him to make sure he walked out, closing the door and stuff. And Marius is lying in bed and it's only when he's in bed that he realises that in the study, lying on the desk, as well as the 20 year note, is, bear in mind he was 96 when this happened, mm-hmm. his MacBook, his iPhone, his iPad, 
his keys to his Toyota Prius. <laughs> he oh never even God. did the driving test, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and Marius is just lying in bed being like, oh no, like, if I was him, I would take all of that. I, you yeah. know, I'd, 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 I'd take it and run. Um, and when he woke up the next morning, he went into the study and he saw that the only thing that had been taken from the desk was the 20 year note. And I always tell the story because it kind of shows that Marius was able to disarm this person with his kindness, with his respect and dignity. He treated this man as he would treat his wife or, you know, his son-in-law or mm-hmm. anyone else. And that is probably one of the reasons why this man didn't, you know, rob from Marius. Yeah. But moreover, this man probably felt quite valued as someone in society who doesn't really feel valued. And, you know, that's the kind of way I like to approach my life. And, you know, I think that I remember really even like an example of kind of direct, the direct treatment that Marius would give me as his grandnephew. Like when I was in junior, junior search, I used to always set like write essays in English. I loved English. It was my yeah. favorite subject. And I'd send him these like stories. Um, and he actually, I was looking for this just on my way up here and I was getting quite emotional because I couldn't find the email for ages, but G- Gmail has a way of archiving emails, but I found yeah. it. So he sent me an email back. Um, I sent him a story and like late in the night one time and he read it through it and bearing in mind, he was like, working on very important cases at this time. And he was around 94 when he did this, because it was in 2010. And he responded saying, Dear Kieran, did not get around to reading your story until yesterday and today. Congratulations. You have a gift. You create drama, tension, arouse interest, and reveal a lively imagination. I think it likely you will learn quickly when you find time seriously to study the art of story writing. I think you would be wise to put a serious study of that on hold while your exams loom. It could be an enormous distraction, <laughs> but make storytelling a hobby, which which will afford you real fun. I'm flattered by sending your by your sending them to me. Very best wishes in your exams. I'll say a prayer for you. Love to all, Mars Gaffney. Wow. And just I read that today, and it was a bit of a full circle <laughs> moment because you know he basically <laughs> told me he was like, "You're going to fall in love with storytelling when you have more time to do it, and make it your hobby, make it your." your your north star and yeah that's kind of what it's become i love the practicality as well though yeah, save off until that. you do your studies <laughs> I know. I'm like, yes, I know. of course i know that's it's, incredible it's yeah so yeah i mean he's definitely a massive um source of inspiration in my life and in the life of a lot of people who've ever crossed paths with him as well yeah so i'd love to explore like two things in like he's obviously having that gift to be able to disarm someone and treat someone like a human being mm-hmm. which is like quite massive and i know you've kind of touched on this a little bit but i'd love you to explore a little bit more about how that is present within how you are in the world today yeah I think I mean like I try and maintain that kind of sense of honor and dignity towards everyone I meet Mm -hmm. I, I really like the idea of just giving everyone the time that you think you deserve in the world whether that's oh, a social that. situation or in a meeting or just an interaction you know I try my best to really just treat everyone with love and that sounds so cheesy and corny but that is how I live my life that's kind of how I've always lived my life well mm-hmm. that's not true actually that's definitely not true I was a brat in primary school but <laughs> um kind of there's a turning point um when uh, a cousin of mine died actually who was quite similar to Marius as well um just lived her life to the full and was one of the most altruistic generous people both emotionally and then materially I guess as well and when she died I remember just being kind of like I want to emulate that emanate emulate I Mm. never can get those words right but I want to kind of live life like that um and you know like examples I mean I can't even pinpoint different examples of and I hope, I actually hope, sorry, I hope that these, this desire I have for myself is actually, actually true. I hope people actually think I'm a yeah, nice yeah, guy. Yeah. Maybe they don't. Maybe think people think I'm an asshole. I don't know if I'm say that. But, I um, can't, you know, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> I, I, who was I talking to? Um, I can't remember. It was so, like, it was someone at a wedding um, and they knew you. <laughs> um, I have like ideas of who it is, but I don't want to say like their names just yeah, in case just it's in not case them. It's wrong, yeah. um, but they said you are the type of person who you will meet anybody and become their friend. <laughs> that is what they said to me. Really? I'm pretty sure I know who it is, but I'll tell you off tell because you. I'm not. I'll send them a big love, big love heart in the post. Yeah. Um, and that's what they, they said. He, he makes friends with everybody. And we were talking about 
I'm actually like nervous to say Shanakia. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's perfect. Okay, okay great. Yeah, you hit the nail on that. But we, that's what we were talking about, mm-hmm. and they, they definitely, I think, had been at some of the earlier ones, and they know you quite well. But that's what they said. So that's I think really lovely. There is that is for them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so it's nice. And I guess I've always kind of wondered how I can make this kind of not only like my personality but also turn it into something that I do like you know how do I make this my job essentially without it being my job to be a nice person or to be everyone's friend like how do I integrate what I love doing and how I love living with what I do for a living that's the dream isn't it the dream yeah and maybe someday it will be the only thing I do for a living hopefully fingers crossed Mm -hmm. um let's jump into there's something else I'd love to explore but you did just mention your second prompt, which mm. is your cousin who passed away. And yeah. in particular, you mentioned their funeral. Yeah. So that one kind of struck me when you sent that. I was mm. like, oh, I kind of wasn't, ex- I wasn't expecting the specific their funeral mm. is something that, you know, kind of aligns with you as an artist. So I'd mm. love you to tell us about that. So Helen Nikiona was um, my dad's first cousin. Um, and my dad has a huge extended family. Like, I think he has 40 first cousins or something crazy like that. So obviously they kind of ranged from younger and closer in age to us and then older mm-hmm. and closer in age to my grandparents. And um, Helen was, I think she passed away and she was, I want to say 40 or 39. She had cancer. Wow. And she had cancer for quite a long time. It was, I think, around, I don't, it was a good few years. Um, but Helen was technically my first cousin once removed. Um, okay. but my aunt, my cousin, call it what you want. And she was the most infectiously positive, like energetic, kindest people I've ever met in my entire life. She'd make a trip to the supermarket or a mundane task, like going to the hardware store, the most exciting moment of your day. She just had a way of injecting her zest for life and her love for the world into every single thing that she did. And she was mm-hmm. really caring. She was a godmother to one of my cousins who has cerebral palsy and you know did absolutely everything she could to make sure that that child's welfare and like kind of health and well-being were of top priority all the time. She just had everyone's everyone else's lives lives on the top of her mind and just a very good soul. Mm-hmm. Um and um she died quite young i remember it was probably my first time dealing with death um and uh, you know sometimes you feel like you don't have the right to be sad when it's someone who is you know let's say like you know familially tenuously linked to you when they're only your first cousin once removed you don't really feel like you should be that upset by it but i was actually really upset by her yeah um i only saw her like twice a year three times a year but still it was enough to really impact me it's that wonderful thing of it doesn't matter if you spend five years with someone or if you spend one night with someone they've still impacted your life completely you know so it's kind of that thing and i i know what you mean by like if someone's your first first cousin removed or Mm. they're your great grand people are almost like but they're not your like close family but it's like it's not about close family it's about how you've connected with exactly it's how you it's how they've inspired you it's how they've yeah exactly and um so her funeral was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life which sounds really weird um, but I remember her, her siblings kind of created this wonderful funeral to reflect her life. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I dealt with death of the immediate family members, but it was also, well, not immediate, of a family member, but it was also my first time dealing with how death is celebrated, or not death, how life is celebrated through through death. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so her funeral, I remember it so vividly. It was in Milltown Church. And, you know, obviously, like I myself, you know, if I die ever, <laughs> um, I would want my funeral to be humanist. I wouldn't want it to be affiliated with the church. But hers was, you know, this was around 10 years ago, if not yeah. longer. And her funeral was in the church. But I'm pretty sure the church were really chill about what we could do and what we couldn't do. So the majority of the ceremony was eulogy. Um, you know, the way oh, funerals wow. can be so annoying when you have someone die and all the priest does is talk about God, even though this person's never even gone to Mass. Like, mm-hmm. this was actually like the majority of the church that I remember at least. I might have blocked out the religious parts, but it was very much like just people getting up and speaking in ode to Helen. And there was a gorgeous guitarist playing with some of her friends who sang. It was all Neil Young songs, if I remember wow. correctly. And also, she had a party piece, which was Mamma Mia by ABBA. She used to do it at every single party you get together. So I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure someone and sang Mamma Mia in the church and her coffin was made of wicker which was beautiful yeah. it just was such a lovely kind of like salt of the earth I was detail. singing at a funeral recently and it, it was um, sing I didn't know you sang yeah oh, cool. yeah that's my 
first career. Class. <laughs> really? That's why I did 12 years before the pandemic. No, 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 not at all. But I, I was singing at it only recently. And I've recently trying to be a celebrant. Amazing. So I've been doing weddings, but I haven't moved into funerals yet, which yeah. is when we were training, learning about funerals made me be like, oh, actually, I do want to do this. Yeah, yeah. For something you kind of touched on there, which was the speaking about the person, not about what they may have believed in. Mm. But when I saw the wicker casket for the first mm. time, I couldn't believe how moved I was. Yeah, me too. I was like, there's there's something so special about mm. it. Mm. And I wouldn't really be that type of person who'd be like, oh, that's really moved me. But when I saw this, mm. there was something so beautiful about the wicker yeah. casket. It was amazing. It was gorgeous. And I remember... The other detail, like I think a lot, I think everyone wore, I think all, a lot of the, I'm not going to say the audience, but a lot of the attendees at the funeral, they wore a lot of different colours. I think mm. I remember I consciously made a decision to wear quite a few colours instead of wearing black. Yeah. And then her siblings and her mother who who survived, or who, do you say survived her? I guess survived, survived her. Survived her, yeah. They all wore black with the red rose, which I thought was really oh, stunning. that's beautiful. It was almost like someone had curated this, and I'm pretty sure someone did, but it was a really gorgeous <laughs> funeral. Uh, but the, the, the hilarious thing, this is one of, why it's one of my favourite memories, um, because when we were waiting for the coffin to arrive from the funeral home, it, Milltown Church is right in between the majority of the UCD college accommodation, yeah. like St. Anne's, whatever it's called, up that neck of the woods, and the architecture school. And my sister's best friend was studying architecture in UCD. It was around the time of exams, if I remember correctly. And she was walking at like 10 a.m. on a Friday morning to her exam. Mm-hmm. She's walking down Milltown Road, and she sees the Gaffneys lined up waiting for a coffin. And just in her mind is like, oh my God, someone in the Gaffney family has died. Um, I didn't know about it. And I see her at this moment and I'm like, oh my God. I don't know if I should say her name. I'll call her Angela. I'm like, Angela, thank you so much for coming. Like my sister Christine is going to really appreciate <laughs> that you're here. And she was just like, oh, like I wouldn't miss it for the world. <laughs> and she basically like, didn't know who had died was like counting all the gaffies making sure that we were all alive and um kind of just like my my mum goes over to her and is like oh Ange, like thank you so much for coming like christine's gonna really appreciate it and christine gets out of the car when she arrived and she kind of looked at Ange and was like what are you doing here and <laughs> Ange was like oh i have to come so Ange basically comes to the funeral sits through oh my god i love it i love how she's gone from angela a made-up name yeah, to Ange. i know Ange <laughs> sounds better um but Ange is sitting there in the funeral having missed her exam oh no bawling crying at the end like she's crying the most out of any of us even like Helen's closest friends are probably not well she probably they probably were crying as well Ange was crying so so much and she was just like I didn't even know this person and I'm just so moved by how amazing a person she was I was like this personality could move mountains like I'm mourning her and I didn't even know her and she left the funeral feeling so touched by this person and that I remember that was the moment when I was like I want to have that effect on people in my kindness and in my personality and in what I do and in the legacy I leave behind whenever I do. Yeah. Or if, yeah, if I don't keep saying if, I'm definitely going to die at some You're point. You're doing but, it. <laughs> yeah. No, you like, will die, first yeah, of all. Yeah, yeah, do we yeah. need to have a chat about that? <laughs> but no. Like, no, but you're doing, as in you're doing what you're kind of saying you're hoping you're doing already through yeah. Shana Kiha. You're, you're doing it. <laughs> I find it crazy to even think that, but I mean, like... I guess, you know, Shanakia is an expression of my personality, mm-hmm. um, but it's also an expression of everyone that has gotten involved in it. You know, the speakers, the photographers, the guys who help at the door, the mm-hmm. spaces I run it in as well. Like, I mean, yeah. we do um, the Fumbly in Dublin, we do Ridley Road Social Club in Dalston, and then we do this amazing wine shop in Amsterdam called A Sense of Place. Um and they're all like just really like, you know, from the heart businesses that have kind of just come together with very like-minded people who put all their heart and soul into curating these spaces where people feel safe, people feel, you know, um, enlightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like the modern day salons in Paris. Like that's the kind of vibe, you know, where like people can just come and feel like they can either listen to people talk about things or tell their own tales and just feel very connected um, and very grounded. It's a very grounding experience coming to Shanakia because, and you know, this is what a lot of people say, the, you'll get up and you listen to one person tell their story and you'll be pissing yourself laughing. And then the next person 
your heart will feel like it's been shattered into a million pieces. And then the next person will do both of those things to you. And then the final person will make you feel a little bit weirded out because their story made no sense. And it's all just brilliant because it's such a mixture of like emotions. It's and, a reflection on life. Yeah. Yeah. And it is really, really, really beautiful to experience that firsthand, but then also to see other people experience it in their own unique way as well. Let me ask you as an artist. So like Shanaki is growing, mm-hmm. it's getting much bigger. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more events happening, which is amazing. And like, I think you believe it will continue to grow mm-hmm. over the next few years. Um, But as someone who it's clearly come from a space of like, you know, life experiences, people mm. you've been affected by, the fact that you love storytelling. Mm. How, or have you even thought about this? Are you going to manage it possibly in the next few years becoming a business mm. and having to, do you do you be like, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing? Or are you going to be like, which I've learned very late in life, being like, I have to look at this like a business as mm. well. Mm. Is that something that makes you nervous around the, what Shanakia is actually about and that's because that's a conversation I have around all art forms at all times it's definitely something I've kind of been thinking about more and more and I mean like I guess at some point when you're running something like this you need to step away from it a little bit just to look at the bigger picture you can still be very much involved in it and have your heart in it and stuff but you know I would want to probably not like I guess get too wrapped into it um but at the same time i wouldn't want to become detached from it mm. yeah i think you know like it's even i look at other events that kind of started from the grassroots and have kind of built themselves from the bottom up like let's say so far sounds i think so far sounds is a really good example of i guess you know the type of event that i would be very inspired by and its story is something that really resonates with me and you know if shanakia did become this international storytelling venue or space which i believe it will become if i put my mind to it yeah um i think you know it can be something where we could have it happening in melbourne and dublin at the same time mm-hmm. but, you know maybe someday i'll be able to hire people who knew i don't even know if i can manage someone but um <laughs> i do manage someone actually got it which is honestly <laughs> but um like i'd, I'd uh you know, I'd love to see maybe it become a community and have people working as fixers, even if it's not their full-time job, like, you know, post yeah. Shanakia in your city if you like, you know, if you want to MC it. Oh, I love that, yeah. Um, yeah, that'd be really cool. Uh, it's very early days and it's feel, it feels sacred to even talk about it. Yeah. But I do definitely see it becoming a full-time job. Um, and, you know, I really, really hope that that happens, you know, and then doesn't happen to its detriment. Yes. Um, uh, I think, you know, you just have to be very level-headed, which I am about it. You know, I'm, okay. I'm not allowing it wrap up, you know, like I'm not allowing it consume every moment of my time, but at the same time, I'm very passionate about it. So it is the first thing I think about when I wake up and the last thing I think about when I go to bed. Um, but I think, because it's your passion. Yeah, it really is. And I think conserving the intimacy of it is really important. Like I wouldn't want to... You know, the main event, I wouldn't want it to go above 120 people per Mm -hmm. event. Obviously, you know, there could be opportunities to do festivals or to do like one big, maybe charity event, let's say, in like a theater, like Smock Alley. I hope they're listening. Or somewhere like that, you know, that then I could do somewhere, some like a way bigger event. And I think as long as the speakers are comfortable and as long as the listeners understand what they're to expect, the size of the event shouldn't affect that intimacy value, but uh, I would never want it to become like a really commercial thing. Um, and I think that I'm the only person that can actually like stop that from happening. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just want everyone to feel like it's maintaining that intimacy essence. That's an interesting, it's an interesting conversation I've been having with myself because I recently set up my own cabaret night mm. and We've only done two and it's been great. But one of the biggest things for me was this kind of intimate feeling that it's very much like the audience are part of it without make, without doing the everyone get involved because yeah. I, ha- I hate that stuff. Mm. But knowing that people are sitting in the audience and they're like, I'm part of this, mm. you know, and I was always like, I when I started, I was always like, OK, five years, we'll be doing one in the three arena. Mm. Um, and then over when I've been doing them, I've been like, no, it's got to be this intimate vibe. But I went to the three arena on Sunday to see Vladimir's Vietnamese Christmas. Mm. Um, and I was there and I was like, he's li- he's doing it. I feel like I'm 
like one of his best mates really? at like his house and he very much it wasn't so much it's the way he spoke to the audience it's who he had involved mm. it's how he like connected there was like I would say 120 mm. artists on stage musicians mm. Mm. like if not more and I was watching it and I'm like it can look this big and still so feel what you want it to be. Yeah, it's actually interesting because I had a very similar experience at Joanne McNally's um, show in the Palladium. Okay. And I remember like going to it. I only went, to, I went a couple of weeks ago and in London and she was able to engage with so many members of the audience and she also was able to just be so relatable because she is yeah. just so relatable. Yeah. She's wonderful. I love Joanne. And um, I felt like I was in a room of 50 people even though I was like, I think I was at the back of the the, the theatre and I'm pretty sure there were a couple of thousand there was definitely a couple of thousand Jesus I don't even know how many maybe 10,000 people were out there to be honest I can never count like at like, glance no I know like a couple either. of thousand people yeah. there, sure. and um, it did feel very intimate and warm and homely and um, the, the speakers are all going to be very relatable because the whole thing exactly. is it's ordinary people telling extraordinary stories and you don't have to be an influencer or an mm-hmm. actor or an activist. Now, bear in mind, we do have people who are working in those categories um, speak at Shanakia, but the whole point is, it's not who, well, no, it is about who you are and it is about what you've done, but that's, it's not about your popularity or your yeah. fame that gets you onto that stage um, or your success. You know, to be honest, I think some of the most beautiful stories have been about people's failures and about people's hardships yeah. and people's suffering, I guess, and how they've used those as, you know, moments to, take a step back and feel empowered. You know, you know, generally, I mean, if you're going to be getting up onto a stage um, talking about something that you've endured or a hardship, you probably have had some sort of um, moment of realisation that what you're going through is something yes. worth talking about. Yeah. Um, you mightn't have gotten to the resolution yet, but you are empowered enough to talk about it, yeah. um, which is really nice. Well. I love how you put that because I'm... I'm always worried about people putting their stories out there when they're not, like when they think I'm ready. Mm-hmm. Because like I've been through my own healing journeys mm. where I've been like, I'm told, I know it all. I've done mm. it. And then like months later, I'm like, no, I was still in the shits. But yeah. I, so I worry about those things. So I think you've articulated that. Really yeah. I mean, like I, I told a story about a really traumatic thing I experienced um, a couple of years ago. I probably won't get into it now just because it is quite triggering. Um mm-hmm. But I definitely haven't gotten to the bottom of it. That said, the way I kind of analogously, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, analogously um, talked about it, I kind of told them all about my, you know, kind of moment of epiphany when I realized what had happened to me had actually happened to me. And then I kind of like unpacked that a little bit and I kind of talked about my own journey with it and my own therapy with it and stuff. And then the way I kind of like compared it, I was like, the way I see it is when you're in maths in Leaving Cert. And you're kind of talking the teacher through a really long quadratic equation and you haven't gotten to X equals zero, but you're far enough along the line to articulate where you've gotten to. And then someone else passes the baton to finish it, finish it off. That's kind of how I see people who haven't fully processed something getting up and telling a story. And for me, for example, that's how that's why I closed the story. I was like, look guys, I haven't fully figured this out, but I've gotten to a stage where I'm able to talk about it and actually be like, you know what? I, have you know I've, I'm empowered by this I'm, I'm yeah. able to do this now because it is so healing to stand yeah. up and tell people this is where I'm at with this yeah, yeah even though I don't know where I'm going or the answers or maybe you've a sense of you know you're going to get there and this is going to be something that's going to help you stepping stone yeah big time but Jesus the bravery in that yeah yeah <laughs> it was I was that was that's the story I was most nervous about actually telling um, do you talk regularly at your events? I've spoken or? at all but one. Okay. <laughs> of course, I'd make an event there. I can speak. With <laughs> no, I, I didn't speak at the last one in Dublin, and like I won't be speaking at all, to be honest. But you know, definitely in the new cities, I like to be. I like to get up and speak, and then also we're we're going to going be going into businesses and doing like employee yes, shanakiyanta. So the idea is like the shanakiya would take place, you know, in the workplace, or we take work teams off site and bring them to a space. Um, and I think it would be good for me just to tell a story at the beginning, just to kind of set the tone so people know like how far you know you could go if you wanted to, or how mm-hmm. superficial you could go if you wanted to. Like you know, um, yeah, I think it's important to have experienced Shanakiha there at Shanakiha. It's it's funny because the plural for Shanakiha is Shanakiha, 
but then Shanakia also means storytelling night. Okay. So it's like I'm I'm saying Shanakia for storytellers, but Shanakia spelled differently as storytelling night. That's why it's called. Literally to me, you sound like you're saying the same word. I know, but it's, it's, pronouncing, <laughs> it's pronouncing the exact same way. Okay. So Shanakia, in, as in storytellers, is uh, S-E-A-N-C-H-A-I-T-H-E. Ah, uh, okay, gotcha. And then Shanaki and Iha, so storyteller and yes. night, is merged portmanteau Shanakia. So it was a pun and gotcha. a portmanteau. I actually didn't come up with the name. That's a confession. Okay. Um, my friend Jeff uh, did. So credit to Jeff. Snaps for Jeff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, let's get into your third prompt. Yes. And it's actually, I wanted to kind of jump into this earlier. And then you brought up um, your the death of your cousin and funeral. So I was like, okay, let's go there now. But I wanted to go back to you as a storyteller. So away from Shanakia like going back to writing essays mm. and your third, which was your second prompt mm. uh, is the short story that you wrote in your English leaving cert. Yeah. So let's start there. Let's tell us about that. But then let's, if you could move into being a writer, being a storyteller, like even before Shanakiha was For sure. a thing. So this I would have written in 2013 <clears throat> when okay. I was in school. Um, and I will say, I'll preface it with that it was, um, well, actually, no, first of all, so the, the Leaving Cert, if anyone did the Leaving Cert in 2013, they'll remember this, the paper one um, task was to write a short story about a reunion. And I was going to just write a story about a family reunion, because um, I've experienced many, many of those with like a big family and okay. stuff. But then I was just sitting in the exam hall in June, and I was just like, you know what, I'm going to write a completely different story. And I would preface this with that, you know, I myself am not trans, but a lot of my friends are trans. Um, or, uh, you know, I've, I've also worked you know, with shout out, volunteering, volunteering and stuff. So I do, you know, have a very good sense of um, kind of understanding. You've educated yourself. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, you know, I myself am not trans. So I feel like mm-hmm. now if I was to write a story in the first person as a trans person, I wouldn't feel 100% like... That I have authority to do that. I'm conflicted about it. But back then I, I did I write a short story in my Leaving State Paper One about a girl driving home to Limerick to her school reunion 10 years after leaving school, 10 years after leaving Ireland. It's set in the early 2000s. She hasn't been home um, where she was basically shunned from. And okay. you know, home was a really hard place to live. Um, she was really badly bullied in school. Um and she's really, really nervous because A, it's her first time driving in heels. She never has to drive because she lives in New York. Um, it's also her first time being in Ireland since she's transitioned. Mm-hmm. And no one in the school is going to recognize her. She's you know, really conflicted about this. And she um, gets to the hotel, she checks in. Uh, she eventually makes her way to the um, school reunion and you know, at the door taking names is one of the former class reps or canara or whatever she was like the prefect who thinks that she's the wife of one of the lads in school and she's like no 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 like i'm 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 whatever her name was um and the girl immediately is like oh my god like congratulations like or not congratulations maybe she or she said something i can't remember what, the, what she said but basically something positive like really a positive, positive response really yeah. like um you know this is this is amazing i'm so happy for you and you've gotten to a place where you you know are comfortable and the you know the first person narrative uh, narrator is really like touched by that and empowered by that and feels really good and then throughout the night she realizes that you know the school which was a school where no one really understood what being queer was mm-hmm. you know these people have all grown up and they're all so accepting and they're all so welcoming to her back into the community that she never felt like she was part of uh, prior to transitioning growing up but there's one specific person that she's really, really, really worried about seeing and she hasn't seen him yet. He was the main bully in school. Like he was the person that just did everything he could to destroy her life. And, um, you know, she f- notices that there's a girl at the reunion that she doesn't really recognize. And she doesn't seem to be a wife of any of the lads or a girlfriend of any of the lads in the school. And eventually they get talking at the bar and she realizes that this girl is, you know, who the, the person that had bullied her growing up in school and it's oh, like wow. a full circle moment where they realized that they were both trans and they were both you know super conflicted like living growing up and you know she took it out as a you know like it manifested in her being a massive bully and yes. it also manifested in the narrator being you know like uh, like obviously you know suffering in school um and that's how i ended it 
And that all happened in 45 minutes. I just kind of wrote the story off the cuff. I would and, love um, to see the examiner reading that. I know, that's what my mum said Because for too. an 18-year-old, that's quite yeah. nuanced. Yeah, and my mum was even like, what if it's a nun correcting your exam or whatever? And I was like, well, they better fucking like it. Well, they the better, nun they might better. learn something. Exactly, and maybe the nun already you know, does feel compassionate. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I am convicted talking about that story because like, I feel like as someone who isn't trans, maybe I don't have full authority to write about it. I think um, that's interesting and let let me ask you about that and as you say you don't really have an answer for it and mm. I don't either but even like what's important to me is just to start the conversation so maybe then someone might contact in and give mm. an answer. Yeah I'd actually love that. But like right like that's I don't even want to use the word imagination because mm. like it's it feels like a quite nuanced truthful story probably mm. aligns with a lot of people but you created this story with my which might resonate with people so and equally a trans person might read it and be like actually there's a lot in this that it's we wrong. need to discuss <laughs> you know I'm aware of all of that but like I'd love for my 18 year old self to you know hopefully be equipped with that yeah exactly but like what do you think as someone who writes and as a storyteller telling other people's stories or inventing stories that might mean something that might go on like there's so many writers who write fiction and it's like they're creating these beautiful you know stories that resonate with people and help people grow and help people figure out their own identities Mm -hmm. like what do you do there because I am the same I wouldn't want to speak from a trans person point of view Mm -hmm. or I can do as much educating even around like you know women's rights but Mm -hmm. I will never be a woman yeah yeah to know what it feels like to just exist Mm -hmm. similar people won't know what like being queer you know there's loads of different things but like if you were to articulate now do you think people have the right to invent stories Mm -hmm. if it's coming from a good place i think i think i think they do i think people do i think as long as the intention is there and as long as let's say for example the storyteller sorry as long as the good intent is there and as long as the storyteller is aware that they might not fully get it right and that mm-hmm. they're open yes. to it. Like, I always think Paolo Coelho has this amazing book. It's actually one of my favorite books. It's called 11 Minutes, and it's about okay. a sex worker. It's about a sex worker um, who lives in Brazil, and then she lives in Geneva. And, you know, Paolo Coelho isn't a sex worker, but he would be very open to learning more about the sex worker's experience prior, uh, you know, subsequent to publishing this book. And, you know, it was always, you know, he writes about these different people in society, and you know, he says, I'm open to learning more and more about the people who I portray and represent. And then you have other authors, you know, who seem to kind of be quite, um, oh, what's the word? Like, not intransigent, but I guess like stubborn and that their narrative and their portrayal of their characters is correct and they, they won't tolerate any kind of criticism. Whereas I think that that's, that's, that's negative. Like, I think mm-hmm. if you're going to write about someone that you aren't, but let's say someone who, you know, represents a community that you're very connected with or that you have an affinity with or that you know people within, you need to be open to learn because you never stop learning. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, I mean, like, I was 18 when I wrote this, so I definitely didn't know half of what I know now. I don't think I had any trans friends back then. I mean, like, mm-hmm. they, I did I did have trans friends back then, but they hadn't come out as trans yeah. until later on in life. Um, But I was willing to learn more and more, and I still am willing to learn more and more about everything I talk about and yeah. even my own experiences as well like I haven't got my head around half of what I've experienced in life I know um, and I think life is but you know but I think that that's important is putting the things out there mm-hmm. and being able to go I might look back on this in five years and be absolutely mortified yeah but if you're not putting out there how much are you slowing down your learning process because yeah. by putting it out there you're giving the opportunity for someone to turn around and critique you and you yeah. go okay cool yeah. tell me exactly what I need to learn. And that's why I find like Twitter quite frustrating because it's so reactive and people can just be really quick yeah. to like slam people down for something they might say or whatever out of context. And I think having a way more constructive conversation with people about the mistakes you've made or yes. the things that you've done wrong is way better for society in general. Yeah. Um, and I suppose for like as an artist, when you put something out there, you put so much work and effort and time and mm-hmm. blah, 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 that your ego jumps in and is protective when someone says that's not quite right. Oh, yeah, of course. That of course you're going to be like, I fucking spent five years doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's, and I think that that's such an important process in being an artist is being like, check your ego mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that that's, 
it's really interesting. But let's move into you being a storyteller since then. Mm-hmm. How has that developed? How has that grown to lead you to setting up a storytelling night? So it's funny because like I had, I used to write all the time. I used to put pen to paper okay. all throughout school, like secondary school. English was my favorite subject, as I already said. And like I loved paper one, paper two, give or take. Didn't really love analyzing stuff. Mm-hmm. But when it came to writing short stories, poetry, um, I just absolutely loved it. And then college came around. I started off college doing pharmacy, which is really, oh. really, really fucked up. I did pharmacy. Great choice of, of a job, though. Yeah, true. I true. worked in a far in a pharmacy for when I was in college. That was like did my really? side job. Yeah. But the funny thing is, like, I I don't know why I did pharmacy because it's an, it's a very 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 like respectable position and it's a mm-hmm. really good career. But I had no interest in it. Um, chemistry was a subject I did in school just to tick the box. Yeah. Um, but I, for some reason, just last day of the CEO, I changed from, I can't remember what it was originally in my CEO. But then anyway, within two months, I was able to transfer into European studies, um, which is what I ended up doing my bachelor in, in college. And, um, you know, got to do my Erasmus in Spain. I did an internship in India. Was living a thousand lives within the four wow. years I was in college. And then moved to Argentina straight after. And then lived in America for two and a half years. And then came back to Dublin during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole time I was dealing with writer's block. Um, and I'm not a published writer, so I don't even know if that's what you call it. But I just couldn't write stories. I even tried to rewrite my story that I wrote in the Leaving Street. And I just oh, wow. I couldn't. I, I remember typing. And I was on a train from LA to San Diego with work. And I just opened up my laptop to try and write the story. And I couldn't get beyond one paragraph. And I just was like, this is insane. And like, like, my life was very, very busy. And especially during that time, I had a lot of things going on. And I just couldn't, like, even journal. I just found it. I, and I still find journaling quite difficult. But, like, mm-hmm. I just massively hit a wall massively um and then when Shanakia began I realized that yeah okay fine I'm not able to write a short story the way I used to be but I can just tell the stories that I tell my friends in the pub or that I tell people when meeting up with them for coffee or whatever and those stories have just as much impact and power as the you know polished story that you yeah, submitted in the Concerned Writers Week you know exam or they hit in a different way as well big time yeah. and then I realized that there's so much power in that type of storytelling anecdotal storytelling um, and you know I've been doing it for a year now and I've spoken in almost every single one and I've seen other people tell their stories um, and then the next one is in January and the theme is love and um, I decided to not tell an anecdotal story. And instead, write a piece, like kind of like an essay piece. Um, okay. It's kind of a little bit influenced by like the likes of Dolly Alderton and stuff who write these really gorgeous yeah, yeah, things. Yeah. And I just was able to write it. And I sent it to some friends and they've read it and they're like, oh, this is gorgeous. Like, this is so well written. This is so... And, it, you know, it's taken like six years to get that sense of like flow back. And I've gotten it back. And it just shows that, you know, when you are feeling like you've hit a wall, that mm. you're about to give up you just need to give it time you need to exercise the mind in different ways and i've finally gotten to where i want to be with um do you feel because i like i get the sense with shanakiha it's like you are aligned with who you are yeah so do you feel because you have found something that you're you have aligned with and maybe found a bit more of sense of self like i may be talking at a turn that then you're returning to something that you aren't actually good at but because possibly you weren't aligned it it wasn't i find that with singing yeah whereas i've i've just gone back to singing and up until a point i just couldn't but through podcasting and through other art forms i've taken on i've found a sense of my identity that now i can take back into singing big time you know is that how you feel yeah i feel like i've kind of just reconnected with myself like you know for years i felt so dislocated i felt so out of place i was also, I like, come to terms with my sexuality when I was 18, mm-hmm. 19. That took a massive toll in my overall sense of, like, kind of self. Um, and then, you know, I had actually had a really good experience coming out, but it was the years leading up to that that kind of crippled me emotionally and yeah. mentally a bit. And then, you know, college, I mean, college is college. You just, like, arse about with your, like, 50 euro a week kind of budgets and yeah. can't really do much with yourself. Um, and then, you know... I just like you know started a job which was really good from a kind of traveling perspective and like kind of networking perspective and um you know the first job I did it was in Buenos Aires and it was really cool I was working for a great alcohol brand and doing those really great collaborations and stuff but I didn't know anything about marketing and I was just like I felt so snowed under and I felt like I didn't really know what I was actually doing and that 
lasted for a couple of years mm-hmm. and I was trying to be this like marketing genius which I'm not and then I think that kind of sent me into a little bit of an existential quandary um and then like in when I lived in New York that's when I started getting really into like sport and fitness which is something I was never into before um that kind of also being in New York as well like after a year of living in Argentina and a year of living in Miami where I was never at home and never really mm-hmm. like even like didn't even have anyone familiar near me and then suddenly I moved to New York where half of Ireland is living and you know I just felt so much more connected with like you know home with my new home um and everything finally just felt really settled um and I felt way more connected with myself and then of course the pandemic all of that security just was swept from under my feet like a rug yeah and I woke up in Brooklyn that morning of the 17th of March and I went to bed in my child at home in Limerick that night like I flew home because wow. COVID New York scary Trump yeah. travel ban all the rest of it get to Ireland I'm in Limerick for the best part of three months having no idea what I was going to do couldn't get back into New York ended up in Dublin working I, I, I left my job after eight months of working New York hours in Ireland which was insane yeah. and then you know started my life in Dublin and then that's when I really started feeling connected again but a little bit frustrated because my life in New York had been taken away from me and then yeah of course then I set up Shanakia and that's when it all fell into place so I think you hit the nail on the head there like I feel so aligned with myself now in a way I haven't really felt since I was doing my English paper ones in the leaving cert. Wow, that's and even really then, cool. Even then, I think it's a much more developed sense of self-alignment than I would have had at the age of 17. Yeah. Um, I think Shaniki is a really nice representation of that. I um, and I just kind of feel so satisfied now that I'm doing what I love and I really want to just keep doing it and doing more of it and yeah. continuing with the path that I've kind of paved out for myself. Yeah. It's something, when you were chatting earlier about being in a job and at the marketing job and being like, I find that if you're in something that overwhelms you, stresses you, mm-hmm. all of those things, it just, that for me moves you further and further away of your sense of self and yeah. sense of identity. Yeah. And then when you like have to take a deep breath and go, I'm not going to do this anymore yeah. and do something else and things are easy. Like, did you ever grieve not being the marketing genius you pushed yourself to be? Or did you just settle into, I found it, I'm grand, I can leave the rest behind? Oh, yeah, big time. Like, my, my best my best friend from work, Slats, he's who I call my work wife, because we worked together for six years, like, for the same companies. I text him regularly, and I'm like, oh, my God, Slats, I'm so shit at my job. Like, I just like, don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to do. He, like, he's a way better marketer than I ever was. And... I just would have all these horrible, like, kind of, like, existential moments of dread and despair. And I just, like, he was the person that would hear all of them. Um, and, you know, I've gotten a lot more confident in my job now than I was before. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, definitely I noticed it really, like, even he actually made a really good point once when we were working together in New York where apparently I'd become really meek in the workplace and I'd become really shy and, like, not myself at all and a little bit, like, stressed around certain people and to be honest I've no problem when it comes to social interactions whatsoever yeah. but it's like I conflate my sense of skill with my sense of self in the workplace and that really affects me and mm. um, I mean it's no longer the case like the past two years I think I've gotten way better at what I do I mean I still have moments when I'm like Jesus Christ imposter syndrome but can we also point out that like Shanaki has marked unbelievable so you're not a shit marketer at all it literally i said this to pj when i had him in last week i was like the photos and what the instagram does is incredible i've never been to an event and i feel like every time like you pop photos up or or sharing things i'm like i feel in that now amazing your photographers are obviously incredible you know like a massive shout out to i hope i get them all but like bear jada molly jeff oh my god Robbie, uh, oh my god, I can't remember who else has done the photos. There've been so many of them. Um, did I say Jana? I did say Jana. Uh, Owen, and then Donald soon. I think that's everyone. But they've all been absolutely amazing and integral in creating what Shanaki yeah. is. And like, we don't even have a logo yet. Like, I mean, we are working on it. But you know, it's when I think Shanaki, I don't have have to think of a visual aid. I just, I just see the palette of you know the Fumbly Ridley Road Ridley Road Social Club, Aesop just like on the feet and all those beautiful warm colors and textures and mm. expressions of people's faces. Like that is what has made Shanaki what it is. And like, if I didn't have such talented artists, you know, like doing these jobs for me, like 
Shanaki would only really be I mean it would still be something but it'd be a fraction of what it is like we went like we went viral from TikTok of a girl similar to you she'd never actually been to Shanakia okay. and she just took some like screenshots of different photos we'd taken and then created a really gorgeous like 60 second TikTok oh wow like, this is a new event happening in Dublin and I remember I was dating someone at the time in uh, the Netherlands and we were just out and about and I just saw that I'd gotten like a thousand followers in one day and I was like what the hell is going on and it was on the TikTok I didn't even know how to use TikTok and um, like that was just six photos that she spoke about of this really cool event happening in Dublin. And that got us so much more recognition. So like a huge, 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 massive thank you is in order um, to the photographers and the videographers. Oh, they're incredible. They're so talented. And that's also what I love too. Like Shanaki is all about highlighting talents in whatever form of storytelling you possess. And that might not necessarily be you know, a vocal form. It could be a visual form, you know, whether that's the people who, you know, take the photos, take the videos, the people who, you know, eventually when we do come out with merch and come out with, if there's a desire, I don't know if people would want merch, but if we do... I'd, <laughs> I'd love a little hat. Would oh, you like a hat? Yeah, I'd love a little, a little hat toast. now, or a toast. I'd love a toast. We're thinking some, like, quotes from different stories. Oh, I love it. Oh, that'd be gorgeous. Yeah, but then people mightn't get it. But then people don't need to get it. They just need to know that's part of the story. But if you had, like, your little logo on it, then people would just know it's part of that. And yeah, exactly. Like, bring them in to yeah, be like, I need to find out about this quote. Yeah, yeah. Like, an actor would be lovely. Like, you know, if you had a Shanaki hoodie and in the back, it'd be a lot, one line from some story or something. You know, you just know that that's part of a bigger story of someone. Yeah. Who, and there's this quote by the poet Kay Tempest, which um, Juno from Other Voices actually sent to me when I was chatting to her about Shanaki. Um, she was saying, she told me the quote, and Kay's quote is basically that. Empathy is remembering that everybody has a story, multiple stories. And I think that just really sums up storytelling, Shanakia, obviously, but storytelling in general, that like empathy is listening to someone's story and kind Mm -hmm. of allowing it relate to your own story, but also just remembering that they need to tell their story before you tell yours. And um, that is the core of Shanakia. It's empathy. It's an event grounded in empathy. It's grounded in Irishness. It's grounded in crack. It's grounded in a bit of fun it's grounded in the emotional like kind of catharsis you experience when you tell your story but empathy is what binds it together and mm-hmm. that is what is felt in the room that is what is you know seen in those pictures and oh, seen in those videos oh no you're talking so fucking beautiful <laughs> where did we lift off oh no we're still going and it's basically yeah so like you know empathy is remembering that someone has a story multiple stories and I think that that is just a really good representation of what like storytelling is generally, but then also, of course, what Shanaki is as well. Like empathy mm-hmm. is grounded, or Shanaki is grounded in empathy. Like everything that we do is grounded in empathy. You know, you have these lovely representations of you know humor and like the crack and people having a good time and having a couple of drinks and you know whatever. But empathy is what binds the event together, and it's really at the core of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, even like. Like we have initially, like people would just send me voice notes. Like people I didn't know would contact me through Instagram, or people would send me voice notes on WhatsApp or whatever. Like, Gaff, here's my story. Or they don't actually tell me. I, just, I don't really know what the stories are, but they'll be like, "Here, I want to tell a story about this. I want to tell a poem about this. Don't really know if this would work, whatever." Um, but now we have like a submissions page on our website, shanakia.com. Um, and you can submit your story. You don't have to give us that much detail. You can just be like, I want to tell a story about my grandmother, or I want to tell my story about a time I accidentally took acid before work, or whatever. And um, they're not examples of stories that have been submitted, but we're <laughs> open to everything. Um, but uh, that experience is enough of catharsis for someone to actually yeah. just type it out. And yeah, like, absolutely. Know, because we can't select everyone. Like we had a hundred, hundred and twenty applicants for January twenty sixth. We're taking applicants for January 27th. When is this going live? Uh, the week before New Year's. The week of New Year's. Okay, yeah, yeah. There we, is yeah, no we'll, structure to this podcast. It will come out <laughs> a day before New Year's. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll definitely, we'll, have, we'll be still, still selecting, but we'll, we're selecting people at the moment like who are sending in these stories about love for the 27th, the new date that we've just announced. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, you know, that experience for someone who they might not get necessarily get selected for the next event, but even for them to be able to walk away and be like, I'm so glad I typed that. I'm so glad I, I actually want to tell this story. I didn't think I would ever tell this story. Um, and what a privilege for you to get to hear all the stories that even people don't hear. It's really fun. I haven't read a book in ages because I just keep reading all these really gorgeous stories yeah. that are being submitted. Um, but it's God, such, it'd be a great book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, that's actually something I'm thinking of. Um, I need to find a publisher, but uh, what I would love is for storytellers to come together and we could create mm. a, wee, a wee anthology for next Christmas. That'd be amazing. Yeah, this isn't my book launch uh, announcement. No, 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 no. Something I, I, it's I, an idea, yeah, people. Definitely, yeah. It's something I'd love to do. Um, and we have a couple of other things as well, like can't really talk about anything until this, of course but, but um you know a couple of more things coming down the line how we can like diversify the offering so it's not just an event in a space but we could also do some events in other other kind of settings uh which would be really cool um, that's amazing yeah i would love to finish by first of all if it's okay with you dedicating this episode to maris and helen oh thank you if that's all right with you li- yeah no we like to do that here if anyone ever brings someone who's passed on or if someone who's passed on comes to the space yeah. we always like finish off with that by just dedicating it to them if it yeah, that's yeah. something you would like Th- thank you for and if i would love you actually to finish it off by just saying that quote again um about empathy no. yeah and then we will just leave it there um yeah so it's a quote by kay tempest the british poet and they wrote this in an essay i think that they um published a couple of years ago and the quote is empathy is remembering that Everyone has a story, multiple stories. And I think this is a really nice quote. I think it just really well represents what Shanakia does and the overall sense of empathy that is felt in the room. Yeah. It's felt in the moments afterwards, it's felt in the weeks afterwards. Um, and also, oh, you, could, you can bring this into the edit somewhere. But the one <laughs> thing I love, um, so in one of the promotional videos, you'll, you'll hear it. It's the beginning of the one minute long sizzle that our videographer, Bear, he recorded the sound of people in the laneway afterwards, um, you know, or maybe on one of the smoke breaks. And yeah. what happens is like, you know, there's 70 people or the 100 people in the room all go out for, you know, bathroom breaks or whatever. And it's just this cacophony of people going up to people who've spoken and be like, you're amazing, your story was so good. And there's people who like, you know, just talking to each other and be like, that story was so good, wasn't it? Oh my God, no, I was like, this was that one. Like, it's, like, it's just like- What the story's created. It's just this like sound of, a thousand a hundred people talking to each other animatedly and so and we always go for pints after like we'll always just go to a pub you know like a hundred yeah. of us will descend in a space and it's just so nice because you have the people who have spoken chatting to the people who are listening and the people who are listening chatting to one another and it just is this gorgeous sense of unity that everyone comes together and celebrates the past three hours that we've sat through and it's just really special the whole thing is just so bloody special. It's, <laughs> no, so it's amazing. It. Like, yeah. congratulations. It's, Thank you. And I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I'm excited for you to come. Uh, listen, <laughs> I will be there multiple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, amazing. thank you so much. Yeah, you yeah, are... You. I'm very excited to see what the next few years bring for you. Yeah, and thank too. you for coming and chatting. My honour. Thank you so much. <laughs>